Well, this morning we continue our series, Differentiate. And this uh, series in which we have been studying is a seven-week study through a collection of Jesus' teachings found in the book of Matthew that challenge, that remind, and equip us to live in a differentiated way in our neighborhoods and in our spheres of influence or in our relationships. The passages which we have been studied, uh, which we are studying in Matthew, are part of Matthew's collection on what is often called the Sermon of the Mount. And Matthew alone records this section. It's really unique, but it's really central in Matthew's gospel. He sees it as kind of central to who Jesus is as he delivers what we might call laws of the kingdom. This morning we are going to continue that. And as I've been reading every week this quote from uh, N.T. Wright, I want to just leave it with us again this morning. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is not just giving moral commands. He is unveiling a whole new way of being human, right? This passage we are looking at this morning, all of these passages we've been looking at from Matthew 5, it's not just these moral commands that Jesus wants us to live by. These are the things that are going to differentiate us. These are the things that will make us different. They are a new way to be human. Simply put, Jesus is telling us that loving our enemies will differentiate us. It is a new way that's never been done before. And we'll see that this morning. This morning, as we read from Matthew 5, 43 to 48, we're going to see Jesus talking on this very thing of loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. I invite you to follow along in your Bible or on the screen overhead. And I also invite you, as we read through this passage, to pay attention to where Jesus names what's kind of been accepted culturally, what's been a standard by the way that they live, and then raises the bar for it. We're going to see him do that. This week I encountered a quote about this passage that was recited both by Martin Augsburger but also William Barclay. And that quote uh, was from an early Jewish scholar named C.G. Montefiore. And he says, the central and most famous section, uh, this is the central and most famous section of the Sermon on the Mount. So love your enemies is central. It's the most famous part of all of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, uh, he goes on to reflect that the loving your enemies piece of the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous, that you can encounter people that have no idea of what the church believes, what the church does, who Jesus really was, but they can tell you this. Jesus said that it's important to love your enemies. It's, it's a famous passage. Theologian B- William Barclay says it like this. It is certainly true that there is no passage of the New Testament No other passage in the New Testament which contains such a concentrated expression of the Christian ethic of personal relations as this passage does. We just saw that in a song that, that Sharon played for the kids. It's a theme that shows up time and time again. There is no other place that it shows up in this kind of concise and concentrated expression and is defined as Christian ethic. It is certainly a central and famous section from Sermon on the Mount. And as we read this passage, please just listen to where you find Jesus challenging your approach to relationships. Matthew 5, 38 on. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He calls us his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as we pay attention to the text that we just read, there are really three important things that I want to kind of examine today that we see Jesus doing in this passage. Three, three elements to this story. First, Jesus gives them a sermon and a teaching that in many ways is just calling people back to the original heart and intent of God. God's heart and intent is that his people should be defined and differentiated by his love, and this should be what everyone notices about them. But in many ways, we're going to see that they'd begun to look like everyone else. They begin to act like everyone else. Secondly, Jesus gives them the purpose that God's love fulfills in the world when they are differentiated by it. It makes them the salt of the earth, the city on the hill. It makes sense that they are to live love out to the righteous and the unrighteous. It is both for those that love and they, those that they love and those that they love to justify in hating. Third, as any good sermon does, we're going to see that the third element of what Jesus does here is he gives his followers some very practical and prophetic implications on what it looks like when we are differentiated by our love for enemies. It's these three things that we're going to explore this morning. So first, Jesus calls his followers to the heart and to the intent of God. A way of living that differentiates them from the norm that was historically valued and culturally accepted. Right? The start of this passage. As soon as we start to read this passage, we see that Jesus isn't referencing a written law. Right? He doesn't say, you have heard it said by your fathers. You, he doesn't say, it was written in the law. He says, what? You have heard it was said. It's the first words that we see in this passage. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, it's equal to us saying, well, you know what they say. Or it's the way it's always been done. Or you know what everyone believes about that. The message translation says it like this. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Jesus quickly illustrates, just in those short few words, that not everything that has been traditionally valued and taught is right. Not everything that has been historically valued and taught is right. Not everything that is generally accepted by culture and those around us is a right way of living. Actually, Jesus is going to share what is God's heart and intent, and that it actually is bigger and better than what this historic and cultural saying had realized. He begins by holding this before them, this saying that they knew well, that they had allowed to shape their culture and their lives, and he holds it up to the light for examination. Now, before we talk about what Jesus examines with 
in that passage, in that saying, in that norm, it's important to realize that we also, in many ways, live by this reality. We may not say this reality, but it only makes sense to live by this reality. If we were honest with ourselves, we would have similar sayings and ways of thinking and ways of living, correct? Imagine if Jesus was here today. He'd gather us in East Petersburg Community Park. We'd gather around him just as his crowd is gathering with him on the mountainside. And he'd begin to hold up some sayings that we say. We can't love everyone. Never waste your feelings on somebody who doesn't value them. You don't have to like them. You just have to love them. can't love someone who doesn't love you back. Many ways, we live in a culture that has been shaped and lives in a similar way to what Jesus is examining here for his followers. Now, many of us probably would see that it's acceptable to find it normal to love those that love you, to curse those that curse you. And if this is the case, and I think it is, then we need to listen to Jesus' words very carefully. Press in, listen deeper, and more intently, as Jesus says, you have heard it said. That saying which Jesus is examining is this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we may live by this way of thinking in today's time, but in Jesus' time, they really named this as a way of living. And interesting, the first part of this saying is law. It is part of a written law, but the other part is kind of this echo or an unwritten companion that was formed culturally and historically and attached itself in such a way that it almost felt like law. Love your neighbor certainly was written law. In fact, God himself gave them law to govern both, uh, gave, gave them this law to govern themselves by, to differentiate themselves by. In Leviticus 19, Moses is in the middle of a conversation with God. And he begins to write down these ways of living, which are to differentiate them, and the ways that are supposed to be standards to the relationships. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge. Or bear grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. It becomes this way of living that gives standard purpose and meaning to their personal relationships. Early on, God establishes that his people are to be defined by their love for their neighbor. They are not to be a people of vengeance and grudges. Obviously, Jesus has no problem with this part of the saying. This isn't what he's examining. This isn't a part worth questioning. And just a few chapters later, a few, an era later, Jesus is actually going to say that this is not only God's intent, but it's also the second greatest law, and he upholds it. He actually sets that this is one of the most important things that everything is shaped by. So the problem Jesus has is with this companion, this unwritten companion that has attached itself. These four words. And hate your enemy. Where does this unwritten companion come from? How did it all of a sudden historically and culturally attach itself to loving your neighbor? It's important to know that there is no law in the Old Testament or in the Torah that teaches it's okay to hate your enemy. You will not find this anywhere. Actually, many rabbis today take 
offense at Jesus' teaching here, and it's great because you can Google rabbi and, and, and you know, love your, uh, love your neighbor, enemies, and you'll find all of these articles that actually find Jesus' words here very offensive. One famous rabbi, Norman M. Cohen, writes, The Torah tells us to be fair, just and giving, even to our enemy, but it does not tell us to love our enemy, nor does it tell us to hate him or her. Right, so the part that has been under, misunderstood by Christian churches for many years is that there is no commandment that says that they were supposed to hate their enemy. In fact, when Jesus uh, is addressing this, they would have known well that Exodus 23, 4 through 5, this other thing Moses wrote down, tells them how they are to respond to their enemy. He says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. So if you find your enemy's ox, return it. If you see your donkey or someone who hates you uh, falling, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you, so picture a guy walking down the street with his donkey, and you think, wow, there's somebody I really hate. And all of a sudden, his donkey is falling down under its load. Do not leave it there. How many of you ever have kind of chuckled when something bad happens to somebody you despise? This is what Exodus is talking about. Do not leave it there, be ma- but be sure you help with it. Be sure you help with it. So they, this crowd knows that they aren't to hate their enemy, but love your enemies is quite offensive. There's never been anything commanded quite like that. And sometimes in Jewish teaching, what is not said is as important as what is not said. This is really true of also Midrash storytelling, as I understand it, which Matthew is trained in. Leviticus gave away for a personal relationship. You were to love your neighbor, which is traditionally interpreted by Jewish culture as your fellow countrymen. It's okay to love fellow Americans. It makes no claim on how to respond to national and religious enemies. And so if God claimed that they should love their neighbor, it only made sense for them that the unwritten part was equal. You get to hate your enemies. If I'm supposed to love my countrymen, that means I don't have to love anyone else. And so they assumed with what was not written was as important as what was written. And that is where this historical and cultural saying comes from. And it becomes a value in Jewish culture. It becomes something in Jesus' time in the rabbinic era that people are living by. The First Fruit Design Messianic Organization says, Instead, Jesus contradicted what would have been a popular adage among the zealots, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. This is to say, love your fellow Jew, example your neighbor, but hate the Romans. So what Jesus is addressing is this attitude where it's okay to love your Jew but hate the Romans. The own, and then going on, it says, the Dead, Scree, the Dead Sea community in Qumran went even farther. They taught their followers to love all the sons of light. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. For years, nobody understood everything Jesus was saying about this passage. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they came into these teachings of this certain group within Jewish culture that was actually teaching to love the sons of light and hate the sons of darkness. So in many of your lifetimes, this passage actually came more to life. Right? As they began to explore the Dead Sea Scrolls, they realized there really was some teaching about that. No, the Torah doesn't command it. The Old Testament doesn't command it. But in the rabbinic era, apparently there was this Dead Sea community that was teaching it. And Jesus would have been very familiar with that. 
So it, it said, and hate all the sons of darkness. Understanding the sons of light as members of their own group and sons of the darkness to be other Jews outside of their group. It's okay to love those. Now they even kind of trim down neighbor, right? Now it's the okay not only to love your countrymen, but really you just got to love those like you. It's okay to love other Mennonites, but those Lutherans, uh, you know, they're just a little too different. However, Jesus calls them into a way of living that is the intent and the heart of God's law, which is greatly different than what they believed or assumed it to say. Jesus told them, you have heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. In the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus tells those who are gathered, so if we skip a little farther back, in the beginning of Matthew 5, he says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. In other words, Jesus says, I haven't come to replace those laws. No, I haven't come to kind of revolutionize them. I've come to fulfill the heart and the intent of them. Within regards to this passage, God's love your neighbor, Jesus shows us, means love your enemy as well. That neighbor was never to be read through this thin and small, narrow scope. This was unheard of. Jesus tells those that were gathered to follow him, it means they must love their enemies. And even more than that, they must pray for those who are persecuting them. Now, ironically, there are many rabbis today who also think the idea of loving your enemies is too much. Rabbi Sachs writes, in speaking about enemies, the Torah is realistic rather than utopian. It does not say love your enemies. Apart from saints, we cannot love our enemies. So apart from those few really good people at this, we cannot love our enemies. Even if we do, we eventually pay a high psychological price, and we will eventually hate those who ought to be our friends. What the Torah says instead is, when your enemy is in trouble, come to his assistance. So even in Jewish culture today, there's not this understanding that they are to love their enemies. The call to love your enemies is equally as hard for Norman Cohen, another rabbi who says the Torah tells us to be fair, just, and giving even to our enemy, right? We read that in Exodus. It does not tell us, though, to love our enemy, nor does it tell us to hate him or her. The Torah recognizes reality. Loving our friend and neighbor is easy. Do you notice the jab they just made at Jesus? Jesus is not living in reality. He's an idealist, right? The Torah recognizes reality. Loving our friend and neighbor is easy. Loving our enemy is probably impossible, and that is why our Torah does not command such a thing. Torah does not command you should love your enemy. But Jesus did. That's the very thing Jesus calls us to. Yes, the loving, the call to loving our enemies certainly was different. It was hard to accept in their culture then. It is hard to accept in their culture now. And it was merely unique to Jesus. It was not the world's mindset. It still isn't. Surely Jesus can't mean that we have to love our enemy. Nobody lives that. That's never been the cultural or historical norm. We've never seen the Torah outright command it. And I mean, ironically, isn't it just impossible to live, right? But that's the thing Jesus calls us to. Listen to Jesus once more. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children 
of your Father in heaven. What we see is Jesus calls us to something greater. He calls us to something greater than just giving assistance to an enemy. He calls us to love them and to pray for them. Jesus illustrates that it's God's intent that we are not to just ambiguously love our neighbors, but we're actually to turn our hearts to them, and that starts with the way we pray for them. Our hearts are to be turned to them through our prayers. If what isn't as said is as important as what is said, then we must especially pay attention to the last line of this passage. If we love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us, what's the outcome? What does the Scripture say is the outcome? If we love our enemies and we pray for those that persecute us, we get to be what? Children of the King, right? We get to be God's kids. Now, in Midrash storytelling, if what's not said is as important as what is said, then what does it say for us who refuse to love our enemies? What does it say for those of us who refuse to pray for those that persecute us. Jesus is setting up a very revolutionary thing on this mountainside. He is teaching them what the laws of the kingdom should look like by implying on what it means to not be part of the kingdom. In fact, in many ways, Jesus is just offering further commentary on the opening statement to this whole Sermon on the Mount in this part we often call the Beatitudes, where he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in the heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is a powerful opening statement, and as powerful as it is for us to read it, it was even more powerful for them to hear it on the mountainside because they were listening to what was not said as much as they were listening to as what was said. It's a hopeful statement. We get to be children of God. We get to experience mercy. We get to see God. We get to inherit the kingdom. But however, Jesus was raising the bar. It meant to be his father, we also had to be merciful. We had to be pure in heart. We had to be peacemakers. And we would have to be persecuted. It's a very revolutionary statement. What isn't said is as important. The bar was raised and there was going to be only one way to experience the hope that Jesus was promising. The next thing we see is Jesus is carefully illustrating the intent and purpose of being differentiated by God's love. Jesus tells us that we should love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Jesus then offers this Seemingly strange commentary in one sentence after that statement. He says, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's it's an odd statement. But what isn't said was as shocking as what was said. What Jesus was saying is, God's got no favorites. My blessings... My curses, they rain down equally. My judgment and my love fall equally on everyone. You, Jews, are God's chosen, but you are not God's favorite. God has no favorites. God's blessing and judgment fell on Jews and non-Jews the same. And this was the most troubling part of this passage. The part we tend to skip over It was the most troubling part for Jewish people who believed that they were chosen and therefore also favorited and special. Jesus illustrates that God's intent of loving your neighbor included loving your enemies with a purpose and a reason. 
At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds them in many ways that they are the light of the world, that they are the salt of the earth, they are the city on the hill. And he tells them, therefore, that they are to let their light shine into the world. If we would read this passage in the lens of that, Jesus here is saying that love for your neighbor isn't just this excuse for the righteous and unrighteous. This is what differentiates you in the whole world because it's the way that I want my good news and my message to go to the whole world. You are to be the city on the hill. You are to let your light shine because my blessings and my judgments fall equally on everyone. And as a result, your love should speak my name to the ends of the earth. That's uniquely prophetic. N.T. Wright explains this hard-hitting reality in this way. The shocking thing about this passage in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are told to watch what our Heavenly Father is doing and do the same ourselves. But here's the puzzle. Israel, the chosen people, are challenged to realize that God doesn't have favorites. There aren't people we get to like and love, hate and dislike. There aren't people that the gospel is for and those that it isn't for. And there aren't people that we get to respond to and those we can ignore. There aren't righteous and unrighteous. There aren't favorites, and there aren't secondary citizens. Jesus expects love for their neighbor and enemies to be what differentiates them. It's the very light that shines throughout the world. Lastly, what we see in this text is that Jesus gives a practical and prophetic uh, reflection and challenge on what it means to be differentiated by his love. As any good teacher, rabbi, or pastor does, he then challenges them with some practical takeaways. It's a a passage of practicality. He tells them how it gets lived out in their day-to-day life. Just like Leviticus was something that was to be a standard for the relationship, Jesus brings God's intent back into it and shows them what that looks like in their day-to-day life, in their personal relationships. He illustrates it prophetically in a few ways. First, he says in Matthew 5, 46, If you love those that love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax, are not even the tax collectors doing that? I love the narrative of this for the sheer fact that what is Matthew? This guy that's telling the story, what is Matthew? He's a tax collector. In a few chapters, he's going to tell you that when Jesus calls him to follow him, he's sitting where? At the tax collector booth. Right? Tax collectors are not liked by anyone. They are despised by everyone. Tax collectors were in service to Rome, but Rome gave them no respect because they were still too Jewish. Right? And and Jewish people, the Jewish culture, saw them and their service to Rome as kind of sellouts. So, they were too Roman to be Jewish. They were not respected by anyone. They were compromisers, sellouts, cheapskates. But Jesus uses these despised individuals as an object lesson. You all pride yourself in the way that you love your neighbor. You know that part of Leviticus. You pride yourself in it. And you know how to love your fellow countrymen, those like you. But aren't even the tax collectors doing that? That would have been a slap across the face. Aren't those tax collectors even doing that? Everyone knows how to return love for love. But again, Jesus is carefully illustrating that our love should be different. Are you loving those who don't deserve to be loved? Do you want to love those who hurt you? 
Are you loving those it's hard to love? Are you loving those you disagree with, those who oppress you? Because, guys, that's what God does. I mean, do you remember your whole history where you brought other gods in the temple, where you forgot about me, right? And I still showed my love. I'm only calling you back to God's intent. So don't just love those that love you. God's intent was always bigger than that. And then he goes on, he says, And if you only greet your own people, are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So now we're going to go even more offensive than tax collectors. Jesus is going to uphold pagans as equal to the Jewish culture. We might understand how it's God's intent and heart for us to love our neighbor and our enemy as God's vehicle in the world the vehicle of his mission in the world. We might even understand how we're supposed to turn our hearts and our prayers as this kind of tangible and practical uh, reality towards them. But for Jesus, that was not enough. He goes even one step farther. We cannot be children of God if we don't greet others. If we don't even greet people outside of ourselves. Now, in Jewish culture, it was okay to walk across the road from anyone that you saw as unclean or weird or dangerous. Yet Jesus says that the part of loving your neighbor includes greeting more than your own people. Greeting is an action of going out of your way and to say greetings. To greet somebody meant to wish them shalom, this blessing in everything of their life. What other faith calls its followers to love their enemies, to pray for their oppressors, and even greet those that they are at odds with? Now, do we live that out? In any group of people, if you would study them, there's always people that don't get along. There are people in this room, I'm sure, that don't like each other. Now, ironically, we also have people in this room and in any group of people that would never greet each other because of that dislike. But get this in your head. You don't get to be children of God unless you greet those who are not like you. Watch it in the lobby today. Jesus makes it clear that even pagans greet their own people, but his people will be differentiated by the willingness to greet those not like them. The reality of loving our enemies is explained by Jesus and his followers throughout the New Testament time and time again. John, a disciple and follower of Jesus, echoes Jesus' thoughts when he writes, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to be of God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. John pulls no punches there. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. He goes on a little later. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his love for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if anyone has material possessions and sees someone in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, John writes, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Too often we too settle for a historic and cultural norm way of living, and we do not reach the kingdom's meanings and purpose. We must follow God's intent for our way of living, a way that loves our neighbor without limit and refuses to bear a grudge to the point where we greet and pray for those who hurt us. And the way of living that Jesus is upholding by love includes implications for our national relationships, but it is fulfilled in our day-to-day personal relationships. It's easier to claim we need peace on earth than it is to say, I won't hold a grudge. And that can be the hardest place to actually declare it and live it out. And lastly, 
The love we are to be differentiated by is one that takes intentionality, work, and sacrifice. You have to go greet them. You have to pray. Turn your hearts towards them. We have to demonstrate God's love through a way of living to everyone, believing that it is a vehicle of the good news and that God has no favorites. God doesn't favor anyone over the other. In closing, let me just say this. As we look at this passage, this way of living, this way of loving our enemies, the way of praying for those that persecute us, Jesus taught us that if we are to become children of God, then we must get this passage. It really is the most central and famous part of the Sermon on the Mount. The early church got that. We as a church need to get it too. Between 100 A.D. and 165 A.D., a follower of Jesus named Justin the Martyr wrote, We who formerly hated and murdered one another now live together and share the same table. We pray for our enemies and we try to win those that hate us. Like, they turn into a game. We try to win over those who hate us. He also, uh, he goes on to say, uh, we ourselves, well, we're well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil. But all of us throughout the whole world have traded our weapons of war. We've exchanged our swords for plowshares and spears for farm tools. And now we cultivate the fear of God, justice, kindness, faith, and the expectation of the future given to us. The more we are persecuted and martyred, the more we do for others. Hmm. In that same era, Astrides of Athens write, it has become their passion to do good to their enemies. He's writing about Christians. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians, and this is their manner of life. Later he wrote, Christians appeal to those who wrong them and make them friendly to themselves. They are eager to do good to their enemies. That is what Jesus is calling us to, the intent of God's heart. What it means to love our enemies, that we won't hold grudges, that we will love those who don't love us, that we will greet those who we have problems with because this is how God's mission gets in the world. The message says this, and I'm going to leave this up as the worship team comes forward. You are familiar with the old written law, love your friend, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Later on, the message says, in one word, What I'm saying is, grow up. You are kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards you. This morning as we close out in song, think about where you have not surrendered grudge and you still think it's okay to not greet or have problems with people because you don't get to progress as children of God Do we surrender that part?